This is CT Startup, your source for information on entrepreneurs, investors, and resources in the Connecticut startup ecosystem. From university campuses to industrial labs, from Stanford to Hartford, and from Danbury to Norwich, if it's happening out there in Connecticut, you'll find it in here. Now it's time to enter into a world of innovation, a world of human struggles, heartbreak, and achievement. And most of all, a world of wonder. Welcome to CT Startup. Welcome to CT Startup. This is Dave Bernard from Mirtha Kalina. Chris DeMauro from New Industria. And with us today, our special guest is Dana Buchin, a partner from Mirtha Kalina that is uh, head of our immigration practice. Hello, everyone. A pleasure to be here. So, Dana, <clears throat> one of the things that got, I, I've seen you give presentations to entrepreneurs before. And I think one of the things that would be so useful for our audience is, is, is they may not realize how much immigration uh, impacts entrepreneur practice. So many, especially say in universities, so many students coming out of universities, they're foreign students, they study here in the U.S. and they want to create businesses here in the U.S. and they have great ideas. But it's not easy, especially in today's environment, for them to stay and work here in the U.S. That's right. So what are some, uh, what are some options? How, how does it work? Sure. Um, it doesn't have to be as big of a barrier as, as it seems, uh, the immigration process. So uh, what I would indicate is thinking of entrepreneurship as a way around the rigid visa laws that we have. It's actually a blessing to be an entrepreneur, a foreign entrepreneur these days, due to the fact that the traditional work visas, the path to those traditional work visas is getting narrower and narrower. And I'm going to explain why. Um, but I just want to put it out there from the beginning that being a foreign entrepreneur, if you have the capacity and the inclination to be so, is actually a better way to immigrate to the United States these days. Um, one, Some of the ways that you could do that is... Say you're a foreign student at one of our universities and you just graduated. You get at least a one-year-long work permit called OPT from Optional Practical Training. You could totally use that OPT work permit to start your own business mm. after graduation. It's actually expressly authorized by the regulations. Mm. So I would, I would say if entrepreneurship is your thing, OPT is the most flexible time in your immigration journey to, to, to be an entrepreneur. After the OPT time is up, that's, that's when you have to figure out the next step and that's when we run into obstacles. Uh, but the fact that you've already built your own business up is going to give you a leg up in, in the further fight for it, the next visa. Um, regularly speaking, the next step after an OPT, so the traditional next step after the OPT is the H-1B visa, which mm. by the way, we are in season for right now. April 1st is the deadline for filing H-1B petitions nationwide. Um, that's the traditional visa. The reason why we have a problem with the traditional H-1B visa is because it is limited by legislation to only 85,000 H-1B visas per year. Now, that's been the cap since the 1980s imposed mm. by Congress. And how many applications do we get? Every year we get around 200,000 applications wow. in only the first five days of the season. Oh, <laughs> wow. 
against 85,000 spots because, as you can imagine, a lot has happened to the U.S. economy in the years since the 1980s that would create a demand for more high-tech workers here. So what do people do when they don't get an H-1B visa? And the way it works is on April 1st, between April 1st and April 5th, everyone applies for the 85,000 spots. And there's usually around 200,000 applications in. Since there's more applications than spots available, they conduct a purely luck-based lottery. Ah. Yes. So. Well, it, 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 I will say it's better than say like, you know, what if only Microsoft got all the slots because they sponsored. Yeah, something. no, I so. I get that. I'm just sitting over here thinking about my luck. <laughs> and I'm glad I didn't have to go through that because that's, uh, that's, okay, that's interesting. It's all, it's like a lottery. It's, that's what they tell us. Uh, we've, we, mm. as, as lawyers, we filed a bunch of lawsuits over time to figure out, is it really only luck-based? Mm. And so far, the, the disclosures show that it is, or so they say, a luck-based <laughs> lottery. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, so I will talk soon about the H-1B visa and how it works, but let me leave you with this thought. I am in the business of advising folks how to get around it because obviously more people don't make it than people who mm -hmm. do make it mm -hmm. in the H-1B lottery. So entrepreneurship is one of the best ways to get around H1, the H-1B tragedy, as I call it. Um, so a few ways that entrepreneurs could either use the H-1B visa or the alternatives to the H-1B visas. H-1B visa is regularly for employees. It's been meant to serve high-tech mm. employees. It's needed mostly in the STEM fields, the, science, the, technology, engineering, and math. And you were even talking about, like, uh, in Connecticut, like Infosys um, and uh, some of the other companies that are bringing people in from places like India and stuff that they need the employees. They want to bring them in. That's right. That's right. So we have a high need in the science, technology, engineering, and math, IT, a lot of engineering fields um, in Connecticut. The medical fields also need doctors and nurses. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a wide variety of occupations for the H-1B visa. Now, as I said, H-1B visa is meant to be for an employer-employee relationship. However, a creative lawyer... Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if we know one, <laughs> could find a way of, under the regulations to structure an employer-employee relationship even in an entrepreneurial situation. Mm. So I'll give you an example. What if a founder or co-founder of a, of, of a startup who's a foreign national um, has two or three other American um, partners in the same venture and what if uh, those American partners are going to serve in, an in, the, in, a, in a board of directors that has authority to hire and fire that co-founder? Mm. That is a way of establishing an employer-employee relationship, and therefore even an entrepreneur that owns equity in that business, so technically is a business owner, could qualify for an H-1B visa. So it's interesting because, you know, clearly you're going to, if, if you want to go one of these routes, you're going to have to make some sacrifices. You have to, you might have to place yourself in a position where you really trust your co-founders to, to support you and get you through um, this process. 
And it also uh, impacts, uh, you know, in my area, it impacts, you know, what type of business you form, the structure of that business. Um, right. And uh, so it's uh, really, you know, these, it has wide-reaching impacts. It's, it's actually, it, you know, oftentimes, you know, a partnership and an entrepreneurial endeavor will be considered in some ways like a marriage. It's a marriage of sorts, you know what I mean? You're, you're marrying your partner. And this, and this, is, this is just kind of like a marriage again because if they fire you, uh-oh. <laughs> that's right. But that's only if you want that H-1B right, visa right. because you, you may want to opt for other alternatives, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to discuss those. Um, an alternative to the H-1B visa would be um, the E-2 visa, which is a foreign investor visa mm. for folks who have about $100,000 or so of their own capital to invest in their own venture. And it, uh, it would require that uh, the entrepreneur own and control at least 51% of the business. And um, also, it's only available to nationals of about 80 countries that have mm. a bilateral investment treaty with the United States. And you'd be surprised who's on that list, and you'd be surprised who's off that list. I'm just going to throw a country yeah, at you. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so who's on the list is... For example, the country of Iran. Ah. Yes. Huh. Who's not on the list. We have lots of bilateral treaties with Iran. I can only imagine. I mean, they're (laughs) one of our our greatest supporters. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out that uh, we did have this bilateral investment treaty from the time of the Shah. Really? And we're, we're still honoring it. So... Uh, there's a lot of Iranian dentists and and professionals that opened up their own practices in the U.S. with E2 visa. Hmm. Yep. Now, who's not on the list, you'd be surprised to find out, is Brazil, Russia, India, and China. The BRIC countries do not have a bilateral investment treaty with the United States. Uh, but they have other visa options available, mm. so I'll discuss those later. Now, now when you say $100,000 of capital to invest, mm-hmm. can that include intangible things like a patent? Yeah, well, thank you for that excellent question. That That's <laughs> absolutely great because it goes to the notion of capital. When I say, I, I specifically said capital and not cash because capital could be cash it could be inventory contributions, it could be equipment contributions, and it could be contribution of intellectual property rights by the founder to the business, including patent rights. Now, the issue there would be proving what that patent right is worth, mm-hmm. and appraising a patent right these days is a somewhat a complex business, but it can be done. And absolutely, patent rights... Uh, copyrights, and any other intellectual property rights could count towards that capital. And when I say 100,000, I don't, I, that's not set in stone by any particular law. In fact, the law is very murky. It says you have to prove that you've invested a substantial amount of capital. Why do I huh. come up with 100,000? Is because I banged my head against the walls of the immigration application <laughs> system, and I noticed that generally speaking, it's at a hundred thousand dollars that they start taking you seriously and considering you to be substantial amount of capital, especially if you come from a European country. It's very, it's very interesting. It's like, okay, well now we'll take you serious. It's a very American 
solution. <laughs> oh, you. Oh, now you have money. Well, that's interesting. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. And not only that, not only money, but uh, it's also projection of American jobs because you're going to get approved for this E2 visa based on a very credible business plan that projects revenue and jobs in for the next five years. So more likely, now you have money and can you create American jobs? Okay, we're going to take you seriously. Now, after they grant the visa, do they go back and analyze it? Do they say you've yes. created three jobs? And yes, so they check yeah. on you every two years for mm -hmm. the E2 visa. And if you've created the jobs you promised and you're growing uh, according to your business plan, then um, they can renew it indefinitely every two years. Hmm. So there's no maximum limit on the E2. So your citizenship basically depends on your ability to keep uh, a business going. If you go it, through this route, yeah, yes. That's, it's yes. interesting. I mean, that's not, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It, it makes sense. So <laughs> so if you're the Iranian dentist who started a thing here, <laughs> and it turns out that uh, you can't get customers, like you just can't get clients, then and if your business goes under, then your visa ends and... Unfortunately, yes. Unless you can figure out some other visa category to, to jump on, um, that that's the way the E2 visa works. It has to be sustained. So it's interesting. I mean, in theory, you could have an E2 visa, and if you did nothing about obtaining any other type of status throughout your career, but you decide to sell your company and retire at age 60, 65 or something, and then uh, you have to leave the country because it was based on your ability to be there. That's right. So people who want to take that path and retire, they need to secure a green card. They, they need to go the, the next step over and figure out some other way of securing their green card. And I'll talk about it because there's, there's a bigger investment threshold level for the green card. There's a program that gets you directly a green card because the E2 is just a visa. Mm -hmm. right. the, the green card in the EB5 green card, in, uh, it's called the Immigrant Investor Program. That's a $1 million threshold investment with a requirement of creating 10 full-time American jobs. That's the, the American solution. That's the super <laughs> Yeah, American. it really does. You know, for 100000 you can stay for a while. Yeah, for a million, right? it's permanent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. Um, so those those are options. Um, now, there's another visa option that I want to briefly mention for entrepreneurs because we have a bunch of folks from non-E2 countries who might benefit from the L1 multinational manager or executive visa. And the way this visa works is it's for folks who have worked in their country of origin at a company there as a manager or executive for at least a year full-time. And they came to the United States to either to study and then they graduate and then they want to form a subsidiary of that foreign company that had employed them and work as the local manager or executive mm. for that subsidiary. That's a perfect case for an L1 visa and it goes very well for the Chinese, the Brazilians, the Indians of the world who don't have the E2 the mm. E2 visa privileges, as well as any other country, because it's not restricted to any country. It's for everyone. So if you're a student and you were thinking ahead, mm -hmm. you might create a company in your country of origin while you're a student. Service <laughs> manager there? Maybe. 
But it turns out that it's naturally the <clears throat> case that is, at least folks who come here for an MBA program, it's because they uh, already worked abroad at mm. some sort of a company. Yeah. And, and it's probably that company who's sending them for an MBA or it's or maybe they want to come for an MBA. And upon graduation, it turns out that they could be quite quite useful to their former employer by extending their operations in the United States. That's a very happy match for, for an L1. It's also a tool of foreign direct investment for us because foreign companies may expand operations in Connecticut, let's say, and they will find it useful to send top management and even mid-level management on an L1A visa. And that ability is priceless for, for their expansion efforts because they can't do everything with local labor. They have to bring yeah. some know-how, some management from abroad. And then, of course, just like the E2, the L1 also comes with the requirement of gradually creating American jobs. All of these visa options are incentivizing the creation of American jobs. Okay. Let's take a step back for a moment. I want, I want to go back to the student experience. Uh, I often uh, mentor at, at universities and accelerator programs and such. And foreign student uh, has a great idea. They want to start their company here in the U.S. Um, but they're a student, right? And so they're here on a um, so they're here on a student visa, which does not permit them to work, if I remember right, or there are certain exceptions. So what what can they do? So they're on a student <clears throat> visa. Uh, they should, if they want to work while a student in an entrepreneurial environment to develop their own business, the best way to do so is to try to get CPT, Curricular Practical Training Work Permit. This is possible to the extent there's an entrepreneurship course or something that the school requires as part of your curriculum for you to practice. Mm. So, for example, if this entrepreneurship course that you're taking this semester requires you to work on your own startup, as part of the curriculum, then that's a perfect case for a CPT work permit. However, I want to say that CPT policies vary from university to university. So the, the safest place to go to ask at your university is the international student's office who's, who knows what the policies are there and under what conditions that particular university gives out CPT for your entrepreneurial activity. So that's what I would do with those students. I would send them to the International Student Office for CPT. Now, does, is CPT limited to, by STEM fields, or is it open to anybody? It's open to anyone. Again, the requirement is that whatever activity you engage in is mm. part of the curriculum. It's mandated for you to do practical training as part of your curriculum. Okay. And that requires a, a careful drafting of by the faculty of the curriculum and an internal concentrated review by the university of their curricular practices because it's closely linked with the ability of foreign students to practice in those fields. So and you've assisted universities with drafting this. Yes, yes. I've defi I'm definitely available to assist any university with drafting these policies because they're so important to foreign students. It, it really makes you appreciate, you know, again, like I, I, before I, I was saying before I got on this podcast, I filled out a piece of paper and sent $120 in the state of Connecticut. And then I sent something to the IRS. And I was like, boom, I'm a business. Like, I'm good. I'm, go I'm good to go. It really makes you appreciate, I mean, 
all of the like because you were saying it's, you got to be careful if you go off if you break a rule it could be very bad for you but all this effort all this time all the there's so many options like you got to go you got to figure out what's the right path for you if you want to be a business person in the u.s but you weren't born here and i i, I just i it makes me appreciate a how lucky i had it but b like what a lot of these people are going through to be here it's it you get you can't you can't just be like ah eh, maybe i'll do this <laughs> you know you gotta, you gotta be really into this yeah right. let me make a distinction here between ownership and work so uh, in you know one of the things about the us is that uh, if you're forming a regular c corporation or an llc there's no limitations on ownership the owners can be from anywhere and right. it's not now if you're an S corporation, that's not true, but mm -hmm. you have to be a US citizen or a green card holder or there and there's some restrictions. But um but for LLCs, which is the number one company type used in the US right now, or for C corporations, which are often used uh for in, as international tax blockers, right? So mm -hmm. it's it, there's a lot of uh advantages to both. Um, you know, anyone can own it. So a foreign student can literally start a company in the US. And there's no restrictions on that whatsoever. Now, that's different than working for that company and actually mm -hmm. providing services to that company. That's correct. <clears throat> that, that's, a, that's a brilliant distinction. That's so complicated. <laughs> yes. So it's correct that uh, nothing restricts foreign students from being passive owners yeah. of any business on U.S. soil, except maybe the S-Corp. Uh, passive ownership is not prohibited by F1 regulations. But by passive ownership, I mean literally you own the equity in the company and you do nothing else. Because the minute you start engaging in doing anything for the startup, even if you think of the startup as your own startup, that's considered work mm -hmm. and already starts being regulated by F1 student visa regulations that say no working on F1 student visa without a CPT or an OPT, okay? So if you want to make the leap from passive owner to active owner or engaged in the management of the business, you need to secure CPT or OPT work permit. Now, and that's not to say also, uh, just as a, a side note and, and an option, for companies that have yeah, for foreign students who want to start a business here in the U.S., often they do it with other U.S. students and sort of a collaboration. And it could be that after after uh, university and then after the OPT process, the foreign student could go back to the country of origin, but then provide work for the company that they're an owner in. Um, well, the U.S. students are also owners, and they're here in the U.S. providing work. Yes, that's a that's a, that could be an acceptable combination because nothing prevents the foreign student from going back to their country, a territory which gives them the right to work, yeah. and providing services from there. Um, the only issue that I see there is um, a startup should be careful about using labor in a foreign country because then you become subject to a foreign country's labor laws. And as we, uh, you know, as, as we move down the, uh, <clears throat> the time that we have left, I actually wanted to just spend a couple of minutes talking about you, Dana, because I think that you have, uh, and she didn't know I was going to ask this, so she might be feeling very uncomfortable right now, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I think, Great lead, great lead. Great, great lead. But I, but, but Dana, I, I think, I mean, you yourself have had an immigration experience here in the U.S. Um, you're originally from Romania. 
Correct. And in fact, you're a Romanian consul. Is that is that your official title? Honorary consul of Romania to Connecticut. See, so so Fancy. We, Ooh, we, okay. <laughs> we have a diplomat here at the table. That's why she got the gold <laughs> trim coat and all that. Okay, it makes all sense. And now. so, uh, yes, the, if you obviously you can't see this on a podcast, but Dana is dressed for service at the UN, and the rest of us are wearing <laughs> slovenly clothing. I, I know, right? Like diplomatic immunity over here. <laughs> so, so, so funny. What, what was your experience like? How did you find it coming over, and and, and how does your experience compare to what it's like now? I came over as a foreign student, so I can relate to any listener that is interested in this podcast. Um, I came after high school. I did undergrad here. Then I went to law school, and I overstayed as an attorney. (laughs) 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 Um, But I went through every single step of what I just described. I I did the F1 student visa thing. I had to worry about the work permit thing. I had to do the green card thing. And I got my citizenship. Happy to say it only took me 11 years to get from (laughs) the time when I came in as an F1 student and the time when I naturalized as a U.S. citizen. And I'm proud proud to be a U.S. citizen and a Romanian citizen at Mm -hmm. the same time. So my experience is very closely linked to my professional experience as well. So I could understand where people are coming from. Um, And I want to say that compared to when I did it, um, it's way stricter these days uh, due to new regulations, uh, the most recent of which came out in August 2018, which um, they make it much harder for foreign students to 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 stay on track because um they 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 make it they inflict more stringent punishment on those students who violate the rules even by mistake for example there's a rule that says uh, thou shall not work for longer than 20 hours per week even on cpt while you're Mm, an f1 uh student god forbid you work 21 hours that week Uh, you're already an immediate immigration violator which makes you subject to i'm sorry to say and i hope i'm not scaring anyone but it makes you subject to detention and deportation immediately because it's an the school has to immediately report this to the to ice to department of homeland security so that inflicts a level of Anxiety, (laughs) anxiety that I didn't have to go through. When I came here, I felt welcome. I felt as though this society couldn't wait for me to start contributing and develop as a as a person. Um, These days, some foreign students may rightfully feel as though they're not welcome. But what I want to say to them is, hang in there. Um, There's people there to help out. Um, Things hopefully will change because it's in the best interest of this country for us to keep having this global talent come to our universities. Uh, It is in our best interest to welcome entrepreneurial talent. I mean, this is what this country is all about. Um, It's built on entrepreneurship. It's built on folks coming from all over the world here. So um, don't despair, just hang in there and seek help when, when you feel anxious. You know, one last question. After 11 years, how did it feel to take your citizenship oath? 
Well, I took it in back in 2009, so it was it was amazing. It was uh, in a room with a federal judge who gave us a very heartwarming message of welcome. It's a special ceremony. Whoever will go for this, I advise you to bring your family and not your dog, but if you could bring it, <laughs> if you could bring your dog, they'll be very proud of you because mm -hmm. it's such an emotional ceremony and you feel so proud and they, they call you out by name and by country of origin. And when you hear the, the countries that are present there, you, f you just feel the greatness of this country that manages to attract people from literally all over the world. So it's a very, very impactful ceremony that I'm, I still have pictures from and my folks who I brought over, they still remember this. So it's, it's, and it's been great being an American citizen since then. I've voted in every election. <laughs> I take, I take that right seriously. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm just happy. I'm happy to be in this country. That's absolutely wonderful. We're, it, we're happy to have you here. Yeah. <laughs> As Chris alluded to earlier, uh, I, I mean, I've done absolutely nothing to be an American citizen. <laughs> um, I was, I was, I Feels was like we didn't earn it now, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it's. You know, I, I I and everybody in this room cares very deeply about this country, but um, you know, I, I think the experience of, of immigrants who have gone through the process and then taking that affirmative oath um, is just absolutely tremendous and just representative of of everything that we believe in. Um, and so, thank you very much for not only coming on the podcast and helping us out, but uh, but for just being here and coming into the U.S. and, and helping others come into the U.S. I, I feel more patriotic having <laughs> spoken with you this morning. Oh, I'm, Thank I'm you. glad. N nobody loves America more than immigrants. I could tell you that. It's, it's just a fact. People coming to this country love it mm. by choice. <laughs> That's right. I, and I know my grandparents felt the same way. Mm -hmm. immigrants. Um, well, thanks a lot, Tina. If people want to reach you, uh, the Martha Kalina website, mm -hmm. uh, MarthaLaw.com, and then uh, email is... Uh, dbuchin at mirthalaw.com. So Dana Buchin is my name. You could find me on mirthalaw.com's website and take it from there. And Buchin is B-U-C-C-I-N. B-U-C-I-N. Oh, B-U-C-I-N. Yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm going to get lectured about that later. Um, well, again, thanks for coming on. That was wonderful. Thank you. Talk to everybody soon. Thank you for listening to CT Startup. More Connecticut startup news, information, and events can be found at ctstartup.com. The weekly episodes of this podcast can be downloaded from iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and ctstartup.com. We would like to thank both Sublime Exposure Online and Mirtha Kalina for providing resources and space to CT Startup, which make this show possible. See you next week.